Uh, welcome once again to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. Uh, today we're going to continue this uh, history of the authorized text. Uh, we finished the last segment in about halfway through the second century, so we're going to continue that today uh, and pick up where we left off at about the year 160 AD. 160 AD, there was uh, a writing that was called the Revised Greek Septuagint, or Septuagint, however you want to pronounce it, a revised uh, version. <clears throat> now, the basics of this. When the Septuagint is referred to in writings, it's usually, instead of being spelled out, it's represented by three Roman numerals. That would be the letter L, the letter X, and then another X. So anytime you're reading something and it shows that LXX, it is referring to this Greek, revised Greek Septuagint. Okay? The LXX represents the 70 to 72 scholars who translated the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew into Greek. Okay? Now the Latin word Septuagint, uh, when you break it down, septum means seven and genta means ten times. So it means seven and ten times. So that would be 70. Uh, the beginning. Uh, the original Septuagint was translated about 250 B.C. This represented a translation of only the Pentateuch portion of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch would be Genesis through Deuteronomy, or it's also called the Law. And the whole purpose of the Septuagint uh, was to meet a desire of Hellenized Jews in Egypt. Uh, if you don't know what the term Hellenized means, that is converted Jews, not natural-born Jews, and that would have been uh, the ones who heard the word of God and believed, who were not Jews, okay? So they were basically Gentiles who came to believe. They're called Hellenized Jews. Uh, the history behind all of what's going on here of the original. Uh, the ruler of Egypt at the time is Ptolemy II Philadelphus. Uh, he uh, is from 285 B.C. to 247 B.C., um, a man by the name of Demetrius of Phaleron writes a letter to the king suggesting that the Jewish law is worthy of a place in the royal library, but it needed to be translated into Greek first for comprehension. Why have a book if you can't read it and know what you're reading, right? And this royal library that he's referring to would be none other than the Library of Alexandria. If you don't know much about the Library of Alexandria, uh, today it is considered one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It's lost. We have no idea what happened to it, where it went, uh, but it was a collection of writings that was collected from all over the world. So you know, if it was to be found, that would uh, be something to read some of the things that was kept there uh, throughout history. Now, this guy, Ptolemy, is uh, a son of one of Alexander the Great's uh, four great generals. And what happened when Alexander the Great died, uh, he had four great generals that he divided his conquered lands up among, and Ptolemy would have been one that was in this part of Egypt here. So when the king reads this letter from Demetrius, uh, he's like, yes, that's a great idea. So he goes with it immediately, puts together a group, uh, sends them to Jerusalem to meet the high priest, Eleazar, and requests of him, you know, hey, what do you need to get this done? You know, what materials you need? How much money was it going to take? Uh, any support? Whatever and, of course, he fulfills whatever uh, is suggested. So this group is then taken to the Isle of Pharos, which is a quiet and secluded area connected by a causeway to Alexandria. So they were right outside of where this library was kept. So this group of scholars translated the Pentateuch in 72 days. Okay, Genesis to Deuteronomy. 
Um, some of us might take longer than that to read those books if we haven't read them yet. So uh, that's quite an accomplishment. Uh, Demetrius wrote down the text as they agreed upon it. And then the translation was read aloud to the Jewish community first. And the translation was accepted as pious and exact. Now listen, this was not some job where they rushed to try and get this done as quick as they could. Okay, that 72 days is not referring to uh, how fast you can get it done. Uh, this was something that would have been very serious. It would have been very meticulous. It would have been very articulate. Everything would have been done with care. Okay, so I don't want you to get caught up in that 72 days being fast in that manner. But continuing on, about 23 B.C., the entire Old Testament had been translated into Greek and adopted as a whole under the name of Septuagint. Now, by the time of Christ's birth, the Septuagint was widely accepted and it spread as far as the Palestinian area. Now, for this reason, the Septuagint allowed the knowledge of Old Testament stories and backgrounds to be read and communicated among even the non-Jewish population. Okay, This action paved the way for the spread of Christianity. Now, the barrier... Due to Greek being the language of the land, the Septuagint was naturally adopted by the early Christian church as its official scriptures. Obviously, I mean, it just makes sense. But the Christians would use the Septuagint in discussing doctrinal controversies with Jews. Okay, now, now what I'm getting at here, uh, if you don't know anything about it, the, the Jews had a tendency to stick more to the law. Okay, uh, tradition held a lot of um, weight with them has a lot of weight with them uh then when jesus in the new testament confronted the pharisees and the sadducees at those times they were all caught up in the pomp and the circumstance the the traditions more more than what was the purpose of it all and i mean even jesus tells them hey i didn't come to do away with the law but to fulfill the law he was the reason and and so the christians were uh focused more on that blood and, and and having faith and the atonement of the blood and the forgiving us of our sins, but the Jews stuck with this tradition. Okay, so they always had doctrines that they would argue about. <clears throat> and about uh, 55 to 137 A.D., uh, there was the rise of the rabbinical school of Akiba, A-K-I-B-A. Now, they began what's called the Masoretic Text, now, this focused on the importance of every single letter and word of the original text. This generated what would be called a hyper-literal mode of translation. That is, a literal word-for-word -word translation. Now, the result was a very confusing version. Uh, if any of you out there are multilingual, you kind of know where I'm going with this in the fact that if you take one language and translate every single word as it is, and then transpose that into another language. When you speak it, it doesn't quite make sense. Um, for example, English is unique from other languages in that we, are uh, in speaking a uh, sentence, will pronounce the noun and then uh, the adjective and then uh, the verb and, and that sort of phrasing of the sentence. Whereas other languages use the verbs and, and adverbs and adjectives first and then say the noun. So if you're speaking like it is literally translated, it, it can be confusing, okay? So that, that's where we're getting at to the confusion. It's not what they translated, it's how they translated it, okay? So basically what happened is when they translated this Septuagint that way, it was unacceptable 
due to the liberties taken in transaction uh, translation, as it were. And that would be because it was just so hard to read. I mean, what are you going to get out of that? So the traditional Jews rejected the Septuagint, but they actually accepted this Masoretic text. Well, why? Because it was in their language. They obviously understood it. Okay. Uh, now, the bridge. In about 160 AD, a more literal translation was written by Aquila. And it brought the two versions closer together and was eventually accepted by the Jews as a literal translation. Again, it's not changing the translation. It's changing the language. Does that make sense? Okay. It, it's not changing what the Bible says. It was changing the language of the day. Okay. All right. Uh, the next thing, uh, the Targum Ankylos uh, in 150 AD. Uh, the author was a fellow by the name of Ankylos. He later changed his name from the Aramaic version to the Greek version of Achilla of Sinope. This is the same Achilla as mentioned above who translated the, uh, the new Masoretic text. The word Targum refers to an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Aramaic. This version is unique in that the translator avoids any type of personification. This caused some debate about whether Ankylos and Aquila were the same person or not. And you can understand when you've got two different names going on, uh, whether it was the same person or not, okay? But even this version today is still used uh, in the Yemenite Jewish communities. It is read as a verse-by-verse -verse translation alternately with the Torah. Uh, the Hebrew translation of the Pentateuch is what the Torah is. That's the, remember the Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, that's the, the law. This shows the respect that the Jewish community has for it. So they accepted the Targum and the Torah, and they read them simultaneously or together. Okay, uh, the next person to be introduced is a fellow, uh, nope, it's another writing, Diatessaron. Diatessaron, from about 160 to 175 A.D. Uh, the writer, that's the person we're going to be introduced to, is uh, Tatian, or Tatian, however you want to pronounce it, T-A-T-I-A-N. Born in about 110 A.D., he was an Assyrian philosopher who was a convert of Justin Martyr. So there's the connection uh, further back in the line. He studied under Justin in Rome, and he died a martyr in 166 A.D. Uh, his writings. Tatian desired a compact copy of the Gospels to be conglomerated into one collection. Now, what we're getting at is there was the writing of Matthew, there was the writing of Mark, there was the writing of Luke, there was the writing of John all different writings. He wanted something to put them all together. Okay, that's basically what he's talking about. And the word diatessaron means out of four. Okay, so com combining the four together. And it gives reference to the fact that all four of them uh, were combined into one single narrative. Now, the four Gospels collected together uh, in the diatessaron were four columns. So on one page, you had the first column of Matthew, second column Mount Mark, third column Luke, fourth column John. So they went together on one wide parchment as it was. Now the collection was lost for some time but was recovered in two separate languages, that in Greek and Aramaic. So it was translated into two different languages, Greek and Aramaic. This collection had been copied and spread all across two continents, being Europe and Asia. Tatian, uh, in translating into this diatessaron, he omits the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, 
Okay, so it's not complete, but he had that. To have the four Gospels flow simultaneously, Tatian also created his own narrative sequence, which doesn't comply with what we call the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, he was quoted as saying, quote, While I was giving my most earnest attention to this matter, I happened to meet with certain barbaric writings too old to be compared with the opinions of the Greeks and too divine to be compared with their errors. I was led to put faith in these by the unpretending cast of the language, the inartificial character of the writers, and the foreknowledge displayed of future events, the excellent quality of the precepts and the declaration of the government of the universe as centered in one being. Unquote. So you may ask, what's he saying? <laughs> he was saying that he studied philosophy and then he read the Bible and found it so far superior to anything he had read, he had no choice but to believe the Bible. Okay? From this belief, he met Justin Martyr, who actually led him to Christ. And this was very similar to the story of Apollos in Acts chapter 18 and 19. So there's a similar story there. Uh, the next period of time, 170 A.D. to 325 A.D. This is a period of uh, a little over 300 years or about 310 years, I think. Uh, it's commonly referred to as the silent centuries. Now, this is not the same period in the Bible that's referred to as the 400 silent years from Malachi to Matthew. Okay, this is a whole different deal. It was being 1780 after the Bible was completed, so you can see that. But it is referred to as the silent centuries, <laughs> and you'll see what we're talking about here. Uh, it's named for the period of time between the completion of the New Testament original autographs, which are the writings, and the early 4th century, which is the earliest date of a completed manuscript in existence. Okay, so there was about 310 years there. Now, this gap is used to argue that since there is no complete manuscript found in this time period, that there can be no accurate translation from nothing. Okay? Only foundation in this is that there wasn't a Greek translation until about 325 A.D. The argument states that oral tradition was used to pass the words along, and at some future time, then it was all written down. But translation couldn't be pure as word of mouth would have added or left something out. That's a legitimate argument. There is proof that manuscripts were around, maybe not complete sets in every location, but there were sections here and there that were copied and quoted from. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 through 20 says, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God, for the living to the dead, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So basically, the question remains, should we go to man for answers or to God? Without the Bible, we have no direction in which way to turn, okay? Now, a counter-argument to this argument of the uh, word of mouth and that sort of thing. <clears throat> There's a fellow by the name of Harry Rimmer. Harry Rimmer, R-E-M-E-R. -E -E he collected data and materials from the early church fathers. He wrote uh, what is called the Patristic Chorus, Patristic, P-A-T-R-I-S-T-I-C, the Patristic Chorus. It is also commonly referred to as the witness of the church fathers, fathers, sorry, 
witness of the church fathers. He chronicled these letters and notes from the time of Apostle John's death in 90 A.D. to 400 A.D., every reference to a chapter or verse in the Bible. Okay? Another fellow by the name of Sir David Dalrymple. Dalrymple, D-A-L-R-Y-M-P-L-E. Sir David Dalrymple. In the 19th century, he showed that the entire New Testament could be assembled from Rimmer's work except for 11 verses. 11 verses out of the entire New Testament. From 100 AD to 190 AD, there was enough collected to reassemble it. So even with that, a little bit later on, there was enough to even put it all together. <clears throat> uh, the next gentleman, Dean John Burgon, or Burgon, B-E-R-G-O-N, Dean John Burgon. He also collected works, sermons, and letters from the 1st to the 5th century. He gathered up all scripture references mentioned, written, or quoted. He ended up with 16 volumes, <laughs> okay? 16 volumes. And I know what you're thinking. Well, if there's little skinny books, most of these writings wouldn't have been small. They would have been big to the point where once you bind them in a volume, you couldn't get any more in it. So we're talking about a lot of writing. How much? Well, the 16 volumes included 86,489 quotations. That comes to thousands of quotes per every verse. So there's not only a record of there being portions of the scripture available, but massive amounts of these portions of scripture were available. It wasn't a time where there was nothing written at all. It just wasn't in Greek. So that argument that, you know, being passed by word of mouth uh, has no foundation. Okay, the years 170 to 236 A.D. Um, this is a writer, uh, the name of Hippolytus. H-I-P-P-O-L-Y-T-U-S. Hippolytus, or Hippolytus, depending, I guess, on the pronunciation of that one. Uh, he's believed to have been born in Rome. He was a student of Arrhenius, who in turn was a student of Polycarp. So he goes back to one of the early members that we talked about there. Uh, from 199 to 217 AD, he was a local church leader in the Church of Rome under Pope Zephyrinus. Zephyrinus, Z-E-P-H-Y-R-I-N-U-S. Zephyrinus. You may want to know why I'm spelling these out. I know some of you want to look this stuff up, and I encourage you to look it up for yourself and, and check on this stuff. So, there it is. I'll spell it out so you can find it a little easier. Uh, so 199 to 217 AD, he was a local church leader in the Church of Rome under Pope Zephyrinus. He was distinguished for his learning and eloquence. Now, during this time, a fellow by the name of Origen uh, heard him preach. And we'll talk about Origen in a minute. Uh, Hippolytus accused Pope Zephyrinus of modalism. Modalism. M-O-D-A-L. Modalism. Uh, and if you look that up under uh, Wikipedia or Google it, it tells us, um, quote, modalism is the non-Trinitarian belief that the Heavenly Father, Resurrected Son, and Holy Spirit are different modes or aspects of one God as perceived by the believer rather than three distinct persons in God himself, end quote. Okay. Uh, the next period of time, 217 to 222 A.D., 
uh, Pope Calixtus I extends an absolution to Christians who had committed grave sins, such as adultery. The Pope Calixtus, that's C-A-L-L-I-X-T-U-S, Pope Calixtus I, extends an absolution. What is an absolution? By definition, an absolution means forgiveness, okay, with terms. <laughs> it's not just a free thing. There's a catch. An absolution is a method of buying forgiveness. This was a tact that this pope used to draw Christians back into Catholicism. Why were they leaving? Hmm, wonder why. Absolution is still a Catholic process in use today. Um, absolution is, uh, I guess, to give you an example, uh, is used to uh, pay a priest, a father, a bishop, whoever it may be, uh, when a family member dies and they go into purgatory, you can actually pay this priest to pray them out of purgatory to go to heaven. How do you know how much to pay? <laughs> well, it's determined by the church. Well, how does the church know? Good question. But anyway, that's what absolution is. Hippolytus was so mad at this act of this pope that he allowed himself to be elected as a rival bishop of Rome. <laughs> Not that he wanted this title, but he did it so that he'd have a, I guess, a little bit of authority. Uh, and in this position, he continued attacking the preceding popes, Urban I and Pontian. Urban, U-R-B-A-N, the first, and Pontian, P-O-N-T-I-A-N. So th this was an outspoken uh, fellow here. <clears throat> in 198 uh, to 236 AD, he wrote what's called the Refutation of All Heresies. Refutation of All Heresies. It's written in Greek, and it consisted of ten books. Volume 1, considered the most important volume of all, uh, lists the arguments and errors in the heresies conducted by the Roman Catholic Church. It was included among uh, the works of Origen. Uh, again, we'll talk to him next. Uh, volumes 2 and 3 are lost. Volumes 4 and 5 were found in a monastery in Mount Athos in 1842. Uh, the rest of the ten uh, books, we don't know where they're at. But that's a shame. And again, that's just like going back to that library of Alexandria. Man, if we could find uh, the writings that were lost there, I'm sure they were probably burned, if nothing else. So they're lost forever, but I'm pretty sure. But uh, incredible uh, collection of works here by this fellow. Uh, other writings were based on the subjects of, uh, always have a hard term with it, exegesis. That's E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. S. Exegesis, which is the critical explanation or interpretation of a text or portion of a text. Uh, also, homiletics, the art of preaching. Apologetics, the branch of theology concerned with the defense or proof of Christianity. Uh, polemic law, P-O-L-E-M-I-C, polemic law. It's a set of rules regarding the variety of arguments or controversial statements against one doctrine. It also, uh, he also wrote about chronographical law. This is the science of arranging events in their order of occurrence in time. And ecclesiastical law. The body of laws and regulations made by or adopted by ecclesiastical authority 
for the government of the church organization and its members. He urged his adversaries, quote, Do not build your arguments on isolated texts, but upon the entire New Testament, end quote. That is a challenge we could use today. How many times do you hear people taking one little phrase out of the entire Bible and trying to make their belief system out of one little phrase? And they may even change it. A very, very good example uh, to use today is people will say that money is the root of all evil. How many of you have heard that? Money is the root of all evil. That is nowhere in the Bible. Not in that phraseology. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. You don't have to be rich to be guilty of this sin. You can be poor as a church mouse, but your love of it, you can be guilty of that sin. So that does not mean that every rich person out there is a sinner. There are good Christian people who are rich because it's the love of money. They don't let the money rule them. They rule their money. Okay? <clears throat> now, uh, when you think of this guy, Hippolytus, and all of these writings that he put out, and, and all of the arguments that he based on, and especially after he uses this quote, do not build your arguments on isolated text, but upon the entire New Testament. Well, don't you think he had a copy of the entire New Testament if he made a claim like that? Certainly he did. Obviously he did. <clears throat> okay, now, <clears throat> Origen. We mentioned him a minute ago. Uh, let's see, he lived from 185 to 254 A.D. Origen is thought that uh, he was Egyptian by birth. Don't know for a fact, but it's just thought. Uh, he was taught by his father, Leonidas, in a standard Hellenistic education. If you remember, Hellenistic meant that they were Gentiles, not Jews, who came into the faith. So he was not a Jew. A father named Leonidas, Leonidas. L-E-O-N-I-D-E-S. So it could be Leonides. I don't know. Uh, his father also had him study the Christian scriptures. There is no substantial record anywhere of his conversion to salvation, although both parents were saved. Now think about that a minute. Both his parents were saved. He studies the Bible apart from worship services. In other words, he studied the Bible on his own time. And unfortunately, this guy still ended up in error. Okay? So, when you think about the fact that you might rely on the church leading your children to salvation, that may not be enough. Look at this guy. Studied scriptures on his own and still come up short. You know why? Because he just didn't believe. He didn't have the faith as it was. Uh, let's continue. 202 A.D. He witnessed his own father's martyrdom at 16 years of age under the Christian persecution of Septimius Severus. Septimius Severus. In a family of nine now facing extreme poverty, Origen was taken under the wing of a wealthy woman of high standing. He began writing shortly after his father's death. So you can imagine at 16 years of age, up to that point, he knew his father was a believer. He knew that his father wanted him to learn what he could of the Christian scriptures. And he stood there at the age of 16 and watched his father die for what he believed. Do you think his, he had any doubt in what his father believed? I think he knew his father believed what he said he believed. So <clears throat> that's a further argument over 
it's just amazing that he didn't believe. Uh, the following year, 203 A.D., he reopens the Catechetical School of Alexandria. Uh, well, he didn't open it, but he attended this school at 17 years of age, when Clement is driven out by the persecutions taking place. If you remember back in our study earlier, earlier uh, study Clement is the one that actually opened the school, but at 17 years of age, Origen uh, goes to this school. Now, Clement's belief system. He accepted Greek philosophy. He accepted the Apocrypha as divinely authoritative. And if you know what the Apocrypha is, it's an additional part of what we know of as our Bible today, what is accepted as the Bible today, which are books of... Uh, Several different books, which are very good writings, very interesting reading, but they're not accepted as being part of the Bible. And and there are a lot of people that believe the Apocrypha is part of the Bible. I think the Catholic Bible actually includes the Apocrypha as part of their Bible. Um, in the original 1611 version of the King James Bible, of the authorized text, it does include the Apocrypha, but anyway, okay. Uh, he also believed that salvation could be obtained through several means, including baptism, works, and faith. So, obviously, when this fellow Origen hits this school and turns up with all of these philosophies being pushed on him, yeah, they, I mean, if nothing else, they could have steered him in error, <clears throat> obviously. So, yeah, had a messed up philosophy in that. Now, he had a superior intellect, uh, which was well-versed in Greek mythology. He knew Greek mythology very well. So, he also denied the historical account of biblical history, eternal judgment and punishment, the Holy Spirit's eternality, and salvation by grace. So, he refused to believe that salvation was only by grace. Um, allegorized scripture. Allegory means a representation of an abstract or spiritual meaning through concrete or material forms. The Pope for example, that would be uh, the Pope claims to be a direct representation of Christ himself. And he wears a title on his forehead. In the Latin, it is Vicarious Philae Dei, if I pronounce that right. Vicarious Philae Dei. And that means that he is a representation of Christ. So you can imagine what these scholars were teaching these students in this school. Now remember... Uh, he came into this school during the persecutions of the same emperor who had his father killed. So he is a very important witness to the existence of New Testament books. He's not a believer, but he's important to the witness of the existence of New Testament books. Okay? 219 AD. He began his commentary on the book of John. It grew to 32 volumes. This is considered his masterpiece. Uh, he wrote uh, exegetic homilies on most of the Old Testament books. Um, that phrase, E-X-E-G-E-T-I-C H-O-M-I-L-I-E-S Exegetic homilies. I have a tough time with that word, but anyway, he wrote a lot of commentaries on the Old Testament books. There we go. He finished a complete commentary is on all 27 New Testament books. A complete commentary set on all 27. Well, don't you think he had the whole New Testament if he could do a commentary on all of them? Most philosophers praise Origen's work, but won't mention his commentaries because they alone 
erase the argument of the silent centuries. His work alone re erases the entire argument of the silent centuries. <clears throat> okay. Uh, our next portion will be on the third century. We'll pick that up next time. So thank you for listening. And I sure hope you're enjoying this. And I certainly hope that God gets the glory out of it, but that you learn something as well. Okay. Thank you. Have a nice day.